Well, last week, Pastor Brent did a great job setting up this series on the Ten Commandments. And is anybody else like me that when you hear the term Ten Commandments immediately, visions of Yul Brynner and Charlton Heston come into mind, right? Right? Yep. Cam in the back. That's right. I used to look, man, I so looked forward. Every Easter, it seemed like the Ten Commandments came on. And when I was a kid, man, I was right there tuning in. Absolutely love that movie. Um, a couple of you uh, were wondering what happened to the first commandment, right? Uh, Brent, uh, he did a great job kind of setting the table for the, the rest of the series, but he really talked very little on the first commandment, which is no other gods. And uh, the reason is, is that in many faith traditions, they will actually lump the first two commandments together. And quite honestly, they overlap quite a bit. It's really kind of hard kind of hard to differentiate the two of them. But I'm going to try to do that tonight. I do want to point out one of Brent's main talking points last week was this phrase, believing loyalty. So I just want us to remember that. Believing loyalty. And really what that means is that God wants our utter, utmost devotion. We are not to give our affections to any any other gods or to any other idols, which is the second commandment that we're going to look at tonight. And I also want to briefly just kind of set the table for next week. Many of you are going to ooh and ah over this, but we are going to bring in America's pastor next week, Pastor Dick Foth. Yeah, I know, I know. See, I didn't get that response, Brent. When you introduced me last week, it was more like, oh, brother. But Dominic, he's like, yes. I know, I know Dick is everybody's favorite. What's that? <laughs> okay, that's right, that's right. Dick's everybody's favorite, we all know that. So anyway, he's going to be here next week uh, sharing about how we are not to take the Lord's name in vain. But tonight, we are going to read out of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5. Uh, the verses will be up here on the screen. Go ahead and read with me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I want you to remember that. Punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But... Showing love to what? A thousand generations of those who love me and keep my what? Commandments. <clears throat> now the carved image, <clears throat> I brought my girl along. I, I was so looking forward to using her tonight. Uh, this is my hula girl. I've had her in my, she's been my girl longer than my wife. And my wife and I are going on 22 years of marriage. Now, I know she kind of looks like heck, but she's very dear to me. The carved image referred to in our passage is more commonly known as an idol. Now, here in the West, whenever you hear the term idol, what immediately comes to mind? What comes to mind, Ricky? Okay. American idol. Come on, people. 
Let's, let's get deep here. American Idol, American institution, since 2002, right? It's produced all these great recording artists, Kelly Clarkson, uh, Clay Aiken, Jennifer Hudson, probably the biggest of them all, Carrie Underwood, right? Um, for those of you who grew up in the 50s, you became acquainted with the term teen idol, right? So Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, uh, Ricky Nelson, James Dean, Elvis, all were hugely popular teen idols. And for those of us who are sports fans, you as a kid, you probably grew up, you had uh, a, an athlete or a sports idol that you looked up to, right? For me as a kid, I looked up to Johnny Bench and Pete Rose. Those were my sports idols. Now, typically, in those contexts, idols are pretty harmless and are really more about people that we admire and people that we aspire to be like, right? And we need people like that to provide the rest of us with inspiration and help us to see what's possible in our world. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Idols, however, in the context of the Ten Commandments, as you might imagine, are absolutely nothing like any of that. Now, before I go on, I want to remind us that the Ten Commandments are actually found in two places in Scripture. Did any of you guys know that? Is this new to anybody? It's found in two places. It's found in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. Now, we know that if something pops up more than once in Scripture, this should tell us that we need to perk up, we need to pay attention. And that's the case with the Ten Commandments. God is telling us that these are important for us to know. The other thing to remember about the Ten Commandments is that they are all outwardly focused. They're all outwardly focused. The first three have to do with our relationship with God. No other gods, no idols, do not take the Lord's name in vain. And the remaining seven have to do with our relationship with one another. Now, does it strike you as kind of funny? I, I find this funny. That when God established the Ten Commandments, he spent more time ensuring that we understood the importance of properly dealing with one another than properly dealing with him. And I think the reason for that is that he knows some of the best ways for us to worship him is to properly engage with one another in a godly manner. Another interesting point is that if you get the first commandment wrong, you're going to get all the others wrong. I know, it makes me go, ah, like that also. It's kind of like the algebraic math problem, right? that has all these steps to follow to get to the final answer. Any of you math geeks out there? Okay, I'm sorry. I cannot stand math. I have a 13-year-old who is a genius in math, and he wants to make sure that I know how dumb I am and how smart he is. And he's always telling me, Dad, can you do this equation? Can you do this? I'm like, I don't understand Greek. I don't know what that is. 
But these math problems, they have steps to follow, right? And if you get the first step wrong, you don't have a chance of getting the answer correct. And it's the same with the, first, with the Ten Commandments. So get the first commandment right, and all the others are going to fall into place. Now, I want to make one other point here before we go any further. And I feel like this is a really important point to make. In that Deuteronomy passage, it says, God says, I am a jealous God. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't typically think of God as being jealous. Do you? I mean, he's God, right? What does God have to be jealous of? The Ten Commandments were the terms of the covenant, the covenant relationship between Yahweh and Israel. And what God is saying to the Israelites, he's saying, you are my people. I am your God. We have a thing here. So when you go off and you go off and worship other gods, well, God is going to be jealous about that. And we all get this, right? We get, those of us who are married, we get this. As a married person, you are in a covenantal relationship with your spouse. You've made a promise with one another to be exclusive with one another as long as you both shall live. If my wife sees me talking with some pretty young girl, there might be reason for some suspicion on her part, right? She might want to ask me a few questions about who this gal is. Ladies, am I right? Is it fair to say that she might have a little bit of jealousy on her part? Yeah, maybe, maybe. And the reason is because on January 31st, 1998, I made a vow to her that I would be loyal and faithful to her as long as we both should live. So when God says that he is a jealous God, that means that he doesn't want our affection going towards any other gods or any other idols. And this is really important for us to remember as you continue to listen to me talking throughout the rest of the evening. So, what exactly is an idol? Well, an idol is a man-made thing that people choose to worship. And in the days of antiquity, uh, they were easy to identify. They were usually made out of gold or silver or bronze or wood. And the thought was that a particular god would actually inhabit an idol. And the idols would act as a sort of intermediary between the god and the people. Now, these created things in and of themselves, there's nothing wrong with them, right? Nothing wrong with them. But when they take the place of God in a person's life, then that becomes an idol. Now, idol worship came about because, well, we as people, we have a hard time believing in things that we cannot see, don't we? Yeah. We naturally prefer things that are tangible, things that we can see or smell or hear or touch. 
We prefer this over that which we cannot see. We almost always take the seeing is believing approach to every aspect of our lives. And of course, this flies in the face of what scripture tells us about faith. Faith is believing in those things which we cannot, what? See. So what people have done throughout the course of history is they make idols to become a physical representation of a particular God. And in the ancient world, everybody had an image of a God. Some notable gods we'll see here on the screens. Ashtoreth was a goddess of the Canaanites that was connected with fertility and maternity. Baal, or Baal, was the most important god worshipped by the Canaanites. There was also Molech, who was the fire god. There was Dagon, who was the god, the fish god of the Philistines. And Dagon was a god of fertility and crops. Uh, the Egyptians, they had many gods themselves, but the most prominent ones are Ra, who was the sun god. There was Isis, the goddess of magic. And then Osiris, the lord of the afterlife. Idol worship was pervasive throughout the ancient world. So for God to tell the Israelites not to bow down to any graven image, well, this was a complete 180 from what the Israelites saw being practiced by their neighbors. And because of that, eventually the Israelites started to worship idols themselves. And probably the most well-known example of this is the story of the golden calf. And I know that we, we all have read this before. This is a story that comes out of the book of Exodus, chapter 32. Let me read it for you. Now, when the people saw that Moses was delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, all right, all right, tear off the gold earrings, which are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings, which were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Wow. You can see there that the Israelites were wanting to worship Yahweh. They were just going about worshiping him the wrong way. You see, their problem was in making the calf to be a representation of Yahweh. What they were guilty of was making an image 
to worship God. Now, to get a good idea of why this was such a bad thing, we have to go to the previous chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 4. It's right up here on the screens. And it says this, Since you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the fire, take care and watch yourselves closely so that you do not act corruptly by making an idol for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. No form. The Israelites were guilty of giving a form to God. Now, I'm going to come back to this in just a moment, all right? A different example where we see the Israelites replacing God is found in the book of 1 Samuel. And this is completely different than a man-made thing, but the idea is still the same. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old (laughs) and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Interesting. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you, for it is not you that they have rejected but they have rejected me as their king. Wow. See, up until this point, God was their king. God was the one who provided for their needs. God was the one who was talking to them. God was the one who was providing guidance for for them. But we see here again that the people wanted something tangible, something like what their neighbors had. And they were asking for a king to replace God. God was going to give them a king, but he was going to give them a king in his time and not their time. And this is a perfect example of what happens when followers of God have a desire to be like their surrounding culture. And of course, we know how this played out, right? The Israelites got their king, and it got them into a lot of trouble. God tried to warn them. So, why this particular commandment? Well, first, in giving all of the Ten Commandments, God is helping the Israelites know what was important to him. All of us get this, right? We we totally get this. We all understand that a great way to get to know one another is to know what matters to each of us the most. And before the Israelites travel into the promised land, God is saying, hey gang, listen up. These 10 things matter to me. Secondly, this particular commandment is defining how the Israelites were to go about worshiping 
him. See, many of the laws in the Torah were meant as instructions for the proper ways to worship Yahweh. And a big part of worshiping God is not defining who he is by limiting him to the shape and form of an idol. Doing so misrepresents who God is. It's kind of like if I carry in my pocket a picture of Halle Berry and I go around and I tell people, everybody that I know, this is Halle Berry, this is my wife, when she's not my wife, who do you think is going to have a problem with that? My wife. I'm going to have a talking to, right? Now, I, I really like Halle Berry, but man, my wife would not put up with me claiming Halle Berry as my wife. See, the reason is that this is a misrepresentation of who my wife is. And it's the same way with God. Remember, God has no form. God has no form. So for people to give him a form and say, this is God, well, you can understand why God would have a problem with that, right? Also, by making idols, the Israelites were controlling who they thought God was. They were controlling who they thought God was. And in doing so, it limited how they would go about worshiping him. We have to remember that God is the one who sets the parameters of how we are to worship him. And this noted uh, Ten Commandment scholar, P.D. Miller, he says this. He says, he, God, has freed them to worship him as he instructs. Not as they think, not as they design, not as they intuit, not as they borrow from their neighbors. Worship is meant to be governed by God just as much as it's meant to be directed unto God. And since this is all about the proper worship of God, the theologian R.C. Sproul, he died a couple of years ago, but he said you can learn a lot about a God by the type of worship that he requires. So what was required of worshiping the ancient gods? Well, to worship Baal, they were... uh, Followers of Baal would sacrifice animals, but they would also sacrifice children. Followers of Asherah, they practiced ritualistic prostitution. And what they believed was that um, the sexual union of Baal and Asherah produced fertility. So what the worshipers would do, they would uh, engage in immoral sex themselves as a way of causing these two gods to be joined together as a way of ensuring good harvest. I personally think it had nothing to do with harvest. I think it was just about having sex with one another. They were looking for an excuse to do it. The notorious god Molech, he was known for the sacrifice of children. 
in this description I came across this week. It said the image of Moloch was a human figure with a bull's head. And he had outstretched arms ready to receive the children destined for sacrifice. This image of Molech was heated from within. So he had this red hot fire and the children would be placed on Molech's arms. And eventually they would roll off into the fiery pit below. And in order to drown out the cries of the victims, flutes were played and drums were beaten And mothers stood by without tears to give the impression of the voluntary character of the offering. Isn't that just wonderful? Just a couple of weeks ago, as I was preparing for this message, I came across this BBC BBC report. It was a report of child sacrifice discovered on the coast of Peru. Anybody see that? It was discovered on the coast of Peru, and apparently over 200 children between the ages of 12 and 14 were sacrificed as recently as 500 years ago to a moon god. Over the years, children have paid a high price for idol worship. And I dare to say they still pay the price today. Self-mutilation, sexual deviancy, child sacrifice, all were hallmarks of worshiping ancient gods. And this, of course, was in direct contrast to the type of worship required by the God of Israel. In fact, he says in Jeremiah 32, 35, they built high places for Baal in the valley of Ben-Hanam to sacrifice their sons and daughters to Molech. Though I never commanded it, nor did it enter my mind that they should do such a detestable thing and so make Judah sin. God saying, that thought of sacrificing your children, I never thought of that. So what was required of worshiping God? Well, there were purification rituals. There was animal sacrifice. Incense was burned. A handful of times a year, all the Israelites were required to come together before the Lord at his tabernacle for the festivals, different festivals such as Passover, first fruits, etc. But always present in the worship of Yahweh were elements of humility, lament, remembering, thanksgiving way different from the worship required by the other pagan gods. Thirdly, God gave these Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai as a way of helping the Israelites separate themselves from the surrounding communities. Remember, context is everything when looking at a passage of Scripture. So in this context, God had just delivered the Hebrews out of Egypt and is taking them into the promised land of Canaan. The second commandment was in direct contrast to the idol worship that was present in polytheistic pagan Egypt that the Israelites had just left. 
and was way different from where they were going in the polytheistic pagan land of Canaan. In both cultures, the Israelites would observe people who had a zeal for worshiping these various gods. And they would observe how these people went about worshiping them through the uses of images and icons. In the context of both of these cultures, God is giving his children a warning of what not to do. And unfortunately, the Israelites were constantly caught up in the cycle of sin, rebellion, deliverance. Sin, rebellion, deliverance. And most of this had to do with their worship of idols. Idol worship is a big deal to God. So if you're sitting here tonight... And you're sitting here thinking, okay, that was a nice history lesson on the second commandment. But I don't bow down to any man-made carved images, right? None of us do that here today. So you might be thinking, what's the point, dude? What does this have to do with me? I don't want any of us to think that because we don't bow down, to man-made carved images that were somehow off the hook because we're not. There are other things that we replace God with. The Apostle Paul, he writes in the book of Colossians, he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? So what is earthly in us? Well, he tells us sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. See, Paul isn't talking about physical man-made idols here. And yet all of these things can become idols in our hearts. And I kind of think those are the worst kind of idols. Because I don't know what's in your heart. You don't know what's in my heart. If we fast forward to the book of Mark chapter 10, we see an example of Jesus interacting with a guy and trying to get to the guy's heart. Let me read this passage to you. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a good question. Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good but one, God. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Again, we see here Jesus highlighting those commandments that have to do with the way we relate with one another. Isn't that interesting? He said to him, teacher, I have kept all of these from my youth. 
Then looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But he was stunned at, his, at this demand and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Could you imagine if Jesus said to you, you lack one thing. Man, I'm sitting here going, Jesus, there's no shortage of things that I lack when it comes to my spiritual fitness. But Jesus says to this guy, one thing you lack, dude, one. In this moment, Jesus was talking directly to the man's heart and pointing out that one thing that had replaced God in that man's life. See, this story isn't about rich people. It's not even about having possessions because there's plenty of godly rich people in our world. In fact, some of you here tonight are godly rich people. Instead, this is a story about a guy who valued his possessions over a relationship with Jesus. His possessions had such a hold on his life that he was willing to walk towards them. And in doing so, he was walking away from Jesus. His possessions had complete and total hold on him. And I feel like this is a good time right now for us to just kind of pause for a moment and consider if maybe there are things in your life, perhaps things that you own, that maybe own you. It's tough to think about, isn't it? Maybe do a quick inventory of the loves of your life. As you think about that, as you hear me say that, what immediately comes to your mind? What is that first love that comes to your mind? What degree does it own you? Has it become an idol in your life? See, the story of the rich young ruler is really a story about repentance. Repentance is doing a 180 in your life. It's turning away from that sin that's in your life or maybe that lifestyle you've been living or the idol that you've been worshiping. I don't know, whatever it is. It's turning from that and turning to God. That's what repentance is. And this guy was doing the exact opposite. He was sacrificing a relationship with Jesus because of his stuff. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that the stuff he owned had become idols in his life. That's the thing about idol worship. Idol worship always requires sacrifice. Always. What did the people sacrifice in the Old Testament? 
Well, they sacrifice their children. They sacrifice their sexual integrity. They sacrifice their relationship with the one true God. So some questions for us to consider as we close. What are you sacrificing today? In what ways are you replacing God in your life? Are you too busy pursuing fill in the blank instead of pursuing God? Today, tonight, right now, where do your affections lie? In what ways are you striving for the seen over the unseen? The band is going to uh, play a song and uh, we are going to take communion as a body together. Because communion is a great way, a great reminder of what it means to pursue Jesus and to practice faith. That's what happens at the communion table. It's at this table that we're reminded of the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf.